Welcome to Indie Creators in the Joy Zone. This is Suzanne Toro and Thomas Ardovani. You are listening to us on iHeartRadio. In addition, you can stream us weekly on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and a wide variety of players worldwide. Without further ado, let's dive into the Joy Zone. Wow, look at look where you are. Good yeah. Lord, that's yeah. beautiful. It, it really is. It's, it's quite amazing here. Where, where's here? Welcome. Um, By the way, welcome to the Indie Creators in the Joy Zone. You're here with Thomas Ardovani and Suzanne Toro. <laughs> hey, wow, where are you? I'm in uh, Gold Hill, Oregon, which is uh, somewhere halfway between Medford and Grants Pass. And oh, beautiful. Big valley that the Rogue River passes through. And nice. uh, I'm up on the, um, this would be the northwestern side of the valley. Well, that looks like a place to uh, find your soul or your spirit and your and whoever the heck you think that you are in any given moment. That's a beautiful place to, to rediscover. Uh, I mean, we've, Suzanne told me so many beautiful things about you. It, uh, it seems like you're into the heavy duty human work. You like to get down to the nitty gritty and help people through their difficult times. You like to help them face their demons and kick some serious butt on those things. So, I mean, how did you get into that? Um, well, you know, when life uh, holds you outside of a moving car and puts your face and grinds it into the, you know, the proverbial road, um, you know, uh, when you snap back up out of it, you want to make sure that nobody else is ever forced into that position again, too. It's, it's really just, um, I think humans have two directions that they can go in when, when they're wounded or traumatized or when adverse situations happen, and they can either turn off or turn on and I think that um, for whatever reason by whatever set of circumstances because I certainly didn't do it right all the time and I certainly made so many errors along the way and uh, and had to really you know have that spiritual belief and drive to atone and to find my highest self and I, and I followed that path you sound and like was, you sound like a, 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 a like a like a uh, an exorcist, a, a snowplow, <laughs> a snowplow for demons. I mean, uh, you, you must have touched a couple of those demons within yourself at some point, yeah. In order to realize how important and vital your your realization was, and being able to see that in others and be able to help them through that. I mean, wh what a gift. We we don't uh, as a as collectively as a culture, we don't really understand the identity and role of the shadow in our psyches and in our day-to-day -day interactions and, and then the collective shadow and all of that um you know a number of years ago we talked about that whole big 2012 thing you know that was going on and it was all supposed to be some kind of great shift um if there is any kind of tangible proof to that you know what it has been has been a, a you know a change of epoch could you, could you clarify that for our listening audience in terms of in terms of what you're talking about 2012 what was the what was the defining I want, to I want to preface it by saying that I don't necessarily like give credence to the theory, but there was a, a great number of uh, a body of theories that said that crossing 2012 would put Earth and the human population into a new era, a new epoch. All right. Some people interpreted it as been, as like kind of mundanely as crossing the galactic equator, which 
is something we did between the late 90s and uh, 2010. <laughs> a galactic equator. Come on, explain. You know, the Milky Way, when you look up the sky and there's a big dense band of stars that goes over the sky, that's the galactic equator. That's oh, beautiful, the beautiful. Of the Milky Way galaxy. Now, the Earth is kind of way out here on the Aspen. And, you know, we kind of go around like this in this big elliptical orbit. So every 2,500 years, I believe, is it? We cross the galactic plane right. and go from the top of the galactic plane to the underside of it, you know, like uh, as if we're, the, the moon were to go around the Earth's equator, right? That sounds I a mean, little short. It's probably like uh, 25,000 or 250,000 or something. Yeah, like. I, I, I mean, I'm probably missing a zero in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, it's a big one. Well, that's close. Uh, cool. so how does that pertain to, to what's happening here? Well, there's a, there was a widespread belief that the Mayan civilization was able to chart these cycles and that they had a calendar that um, marked each of the different eras within each of the concentric circles. And that the legend was that the uh, calendar ended on December 21st, 2012. Okay. So in the run-up to that, there was a lot of belief that this was going to be some kind of apocalypse. But in the New Age side, there was a belief that there was going to be some kind of what would you call it, Suzanne? An ascension, a transformation, like some kind of new activation? Where well, we I think awareness, a level of awareness, and I think that definitely, I definitely think that was anchored with our consciousness, because a lot of people came into understanding in 2012. I would say 2008 to 2012, and now we're seeing another body of people, kind of like shouting back and coming into their awareness now at 2020. Uh, which is interesting because a lot of people are just like a little angry and the people that have been kind of in the quote-unquote no for a while are like i don't know why you're so mad <laughs> this is all old information to uh, get back to the original question so at that time one of the ways that this was also uh, referred to was as the age of revelation and that everything was going to become transparent and everything was going to become visible and i think that when we look at me too and white nationalism and all and the police and BLM and all of that, I think we see that. Things have become revealed. Right. Uh, people, places, and things that previously hid in the shadows are now out in light. And that causes a both a individual and a kind of sociological phenomenon where the shadow is not in its proper place. Uh, the issues that people have are repressed too deeply. And that comes out and is externalized in a lot of really self-destructive and counterproductive behavior. Substance abuse, um, verbal and emotional abuse, um, greed, acquisition materialism, sociopathy, lack of empathy, um, you know, the treatment of migrants, the treatment of homeless, the treatment of, you know, poor people. I mean, all of it. All of it is a, is a part of an expression of our collective shadow that right now is way out of whack. And it was explained to me many years ago by some elders um, that, who would be very old now, but they were like, uh, you know, in their 70s, I think around the time, and they were these old New Agers, and they said that like what's happening is a kind of a purification where those people who choose to take the higher path and try to work through the shadow, integrate it, and, and become their higher selves are here to essentially help shepherd these lost masses that are right now entering this terrible darkness. And if we look all around, look at what's happening. People are panicking. 
People are, are falling into deep substance abuse, deep depression. They're isolated, they're afraid, they're broke. Uh, the ground under their feet is shifting constantly. Yeah, and do, 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 you, do you attribute that? I mean, there's a lot of factors that can go into the social fabric sure. of a culture. and But you're attributing this, uh, gosh, you got 70% of all families are single family homes. Uh, dads are absent. Uh, kids are, everybody's given an award. Nobody's how to manage suffering and, and how to work through things. And uh, it seems like we have a, an entitled young population coming up that feels they can loot and burn every time something goes wrong in the world. So you have, you have, and now working with that, where it takes decades for a culture to eliminate nuclear family, uh, which I guess is, could be also a root of a lot of this evil, uh, how are you tying in these cosmic phenomenons with all of this cultural shift? I'm actually not. I prefer to be, <laughs> I actually, I mean, I'm, I'm saying it in the terms of like, from a meta perspective, like there is some very large like shift going on and you can break it down into something as simple as sociological cycles like they write about in the fourth turning. You know, we're 80 years, we're right on that 80 year cycle Tell us where about it's learning. See, see, I'm the dumb guy. I'm the dumb guy. <laughs> Suzanne already knows all this stuff. So I figure if you can boil it down to something I understand, I can generally understand that maybe my general audience will understand too because. I'm just hoping there's a couple of dumb, more dumb people out there that don't get it like me. So you're okay. helping you're helping me like grasp the vastness of you guys' knowledge because you guys are very vast and you speak in cosmic terms and it's <laughs> it's interesting for us mere earthlings to try to grapple with the uh, magnitude of what it is that you're saying and how that actually pertains to me going out getting a job, me trying to stay in a relationship, me trying to like deal with my own immortality you know what i'm saying so yeah. like uh, uh you guys are like on another level but it's <laughs> cool that occasionally we can get you down to earth and then all the rest of us can begin to take the ride with you <laughs> well, i think we're, we're tr charles and i are definitely two-leggeds <laughs> you might be a little gimpy right now but you're two we're both two-leggeds <laughs> so that's a little bit of insider with me i mean you got to be a little patient with me the fourth turning uh i want to preface this by saying this book has gotten a really bad rap and the only reason it's got a bad rap is because in the beginning of the trump presidency steve bannon referenced it a lot both during the campaign and then early on in the trump administration mm -hmm. but bannon you know for all of his faults or whatever he's not an idiot and he can read and um <laughs> So the book is about uh, two sociologists, um, Neil Strauss and William Howe, I believe, Strauss and Howe. They parsed out, they looked at 500 years of Anglo-American history, okay? And they were able to parse out a regularly occurring 80-year cycle, right? And this 80-year cycle was the rise and fall of, you know, various societies, Okay. That happens in these four generations of 20 years, 20 years, 20 years, and 20 years. And so they point out that every 80 years, there's been a major calamity that has been a paradigm shift. In. So a major war, a major depression are usually what happens. But then there's also, you know, civil unrest, and, you know, now there's ecological issues, and, you know. That's interesting. That 80 years is a magical number. There's, it's, uh, uh, there's is a certain metaphysical circles. There's like, uh, they say that 80 years is one breath of the earth. One breath. Yeah. 
Well, that would make a lot of sense in context to what these two gentlemen are arguing. And um, along with that, then they take it a step further and they look at all of the different archetypes that each generation forms. So they break, you know, they look at the silent generation, the greatest generation, or the greatest generation, silent generation, and then the baby boomers, and then Gen X, and then millennials. And at this point, Gen Z wasn't really being counted because the book came out uh, almost 10 years ago. They'll be lucky to ever be counted. They were still kids kids at this time. But then they, and then they um, break you um, archetypally into four different uh, archetype, prophet, king, nomad, and artist. And so, depending on which generation you were born in, you, you have one of these archetypes. I just, Suzanne, you, know, you won't be surprised to know that my archetype was Nomad. Yeah. <laughs> this <laughs> and, company uh, is Nomad Cinema. <laughs> the name of my, my, name of my production company, which I found out about my archetype much later. So, yeah. when you look at that, you, you see that, like, even though, like, they say that teleology, which is the, you know, it's the predicting of future events by looking at historical patterns. They say it's not a valid science. Science. They say you can't predict the future. Can't. Based on the patterns of the past. I disagree. And Strauss and Howe disagree. Now they say that this is because, you know, there's too many factors and variables involved and there's always different change that comes along. But, you know, one could also very mundanely argue that people are people. That we're still, like, trying to figure out the same fundamental issues. Right. Unless you have cause and effect scientifically. So... Those patterns are repeating and I've already laid the footwork. Well, how, do, how does all of this wonderful deep thought uh, assist you in the work that you do? I mean, how is it, uh, how does that, how does that help you stay in uh, a higher state of being in order for you to function and be perceptive to the nuances that a lot of people aren't paying attention? Well, uh, I think that, I mean, Part of it, I would like to say, is some form of like a gift or intuition that I had that made that gave me aptitude in order to learn quickly and learn deeply. Gift or intuition? See, I'm a dumb guy. Gift or <laughs> intuition? Um, Doctor Seuss. I think that also, you know, because there was my experience of trauma, developmental trauma, acute and complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and a lot of violence, which um, then led to the advocacy work I did. And once you see all of that, and at some point you have to ask yourself, like, what do you do about it, you know? And I spent many years in the political arena trying to march and demonstrate, legislate, petition, ballots, and candidates, and that never really worked. And so there was like, well, what really needs to happen? Now, there's been a belief since the kind of like late 60s, early 70s that like the real revolution that needed to happen was a spiritual one and an internal one. Now, some people can believe that, some people cannot believe that. Um, But over time, what I've started to see is that what we're looking at is a culture that is incredibly sick. Um, It's divided, it is shadow dominant, it is materialistic and and acquisitive, and it is all about essentially uh, end-stage capitalism. Now, at the same time, we're also going through the same patterns of ex-empire that all large imperial powers go through. We're, co- we're collapsing slowly. What that means in practical terms for you, so you understand, is standard and quality of living. How much access to food, energy, resources, materials, and the elective or uh, um, what do they call it, the um, uh, accessories of life. How much are these available to you? And so uh, it will America remain 
yeah, will America remain the top of the, you know, the, the chief empire and the top of the pyramid, or will it now have to give away a portion of its standard of living to other rising powers? This isn't the first time that this happened to us. This also happened to us in the late 60s when Germany and Japan came back online. And they were economic powerhouses that previous were not. They were still rebuilding after World War II. And so that's why we had a huge recession in the early 70s. The cost of living doubled overnight. This is stuff that was all structural. And it's, it's just basic economics and it's, and it's supply and demand, but it's also geopolitics. So now we have China. And China has taken a significant chunk. Along with that, you also have India, you have Brazil, you have Russia, you have Iran, you have South Africa, okay? And then you have the, the EU acting as an entire economic bloc. And then you also have an emerging group, ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is all of the Pacific Rim economies together, right? For national entities. Yep. So what, we've been living on borrowed time, borrowed money, and borrowed troops, really, for quite some time. And borrowed labor. And all of that bill has now come due. Um, the deficit, the fact that we went from a net exporting to a net importing economy, um, the fact that we have what's known as imperial overreach, right? by funding anywhere between 800 to 1,000 military bases around the world. No one else in the world has that. China has two foreign military bases. Right. They're in Africa. And then now they've built some atolls in the South China Sea. In the South China Sea, yeah, because they're going to seize the South China Sea from Vietnam, from the Philippines, from Thailand, and from from Indonesia and and Taiwan. That's their next step. They've been building, you know, like armed, fortified right. islands, island essentially, in order to control that part of the world. Yeah. Now, heretofore, that was the British and French, and then that was us. And we've controlled the waterways, and no one else has had that type of control since the Roman Empire, really. Even with Britain, the British flag flying over 25% of the world, it still never controlled things the way that we do. Right. Now, as that shifts, the American who's used to easy access to everything, including cheap credit, cheap money, cheap energy, cheap food, you know, cheap property, and some places still. (laughs) That's all got to change. Those bills will come due. Um, China's going to have to call in some debt. Japan's going to got to call in some debt eventually. They've been our primary creditors. And we're going to have to have a massive restructuring. Now, they never tell you this. They can't tell you this because the only way that politicians stay in power is through economic prosperity. The only other way they can do it is by demagoguery. Right. What do you see happening right now? <laughs> Economic prosperity being exchanged for demagoguery. Pontification. Well, well, so, so it sounds like you got a little doom and gloom going on over there, my friend, and a pretty, pretty background you got. So, well, so, you're, so your light at the, so your silver lining and your light at the end of the tunnel is still negating the fact that we're a twenty-two trillion dollar a year economy and we're uh, three hundred and. 25 million people. Use the term we, though. That's the thing. That's the issue. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. You said we, are, we are. We are. Yeah. Um, someone like me, I don't feel like I'm part of this country. I've I spent most of my adult life disenfranchised. I, you know, can barely find steady work or a home. So you're an outlier at this point. 
I'm, I consider myself pretty much an outlier, yeah. I would say, I would say, oh my, you got a bit of Nostradamus going on over there too. So that all of your, all of well, your, you were you were leading to a cycle. Yeah, he was leading into a, a but I, but the, it sounds like the the cycle the cycle for you, uh, and not this is not any qualification, but the fact that you're able to sit there on that mountain and pontificate, and and breathe that air and and not be pressure to do anything other than what you want to do is a is a luxury that a lot of people don't have well you perceive it that way but i mean i'm indigent i don't have a home um i'm reliant on like largely other people's you know generosity and largesse lately uh i have a, a disability um i have no i own no property i yeah sure i'm not compelled into like compulsory military service right now and i'm not like a slave that's great but the only reason why I'm able to sit on this mountain and talk to you right now is because I had a personal connection and I was able to get myself here. And if I wasn't able to, and then my stay here isn't even, you know, temporary. And then I got to move on. I got to find someplace else. So how, how has that, now listen, how has that, how has that given you the wisdom and the insight that you currently carry? Because you carry with you an enlightened aspect. You're in tune with things that people don't even think about. And, and you're able to, uh, having come through what I heard you say, I think PTSD, you've come through that uh, somehow you've, you've slayed a few demons to be here, I guess. If you're managing deep PTSD, there's a lot of, I don't even know what comes along with that. Maybe, maybe I do, maybe I don't. But the point is, is that, about it. <laughs> point is, is that you've come through it and because you've come through it, you are, you, you, you're a man of wisdom and help can other help other people through it. I, I'm, I'm assuming that's what you do. Welcome to Indie Creators in the Joy Zone. This is Suzanne Toro and Thomas Ardovani. You are listening to us on iHeartRadio. In addition, you can stream us weekly on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and a wide variety of players worldwide. Without further ado, let's dive in to the Joy Zone. I work with plant medicines and I work with kind of gestalt therapy for people that have, you know, major, major substance use problems, like the kind of treatment resistance stuff they talk about, and people with a really deep pernicious personality disorders, trauma, you know. Um, they what, need... Well, you see what I'm getting at, let's see what I'm getting at is that like somehow if your life would be different, you wouldn't be put in a position to help people on that deep of a level. Uh, right. There's like a, it's like a luxury. It's like a luxury to avoid suffering. But those of us that don't have an easy day to day, and not saying labor, slave labor, easy day to day, but we're forced to confront our own obstacles. And through that, we become insightful. And through that discomfort, we sort of can accept that as part of the equation and therefore have the insight into help somebody through their difficulty. And I think that's, you know, life is said to be bittersweet uh, at its best. In other words, there's always like something else pulling that we might feel is limiting our potential, but yet without that sharpening of our character, we wouldn't be able to see into the things we see into. So yeah. Charles, from the macro, because you shared a beautiful macro yeah. that most people don't really grasp. You know, there, we have people at large, list, we have a worldwide audience. So we have people all over the world going through their own uh, 
I call it, we're in, I thought we were just gonna be in the birth canal, but we're still in gestation through this process, turning left. Um, so everyone's managing where they're at. If you can bring it to the microcosm, so that big macro level, we're, we're paying, we're ready to reconcile our karmic debt. And rather than complete the 80 year cycles that we keep going through, uh, how do you foresee, why Sage, <laughs> that we can liberate ourselves and set the record straight for once? Because it's kind of tiring, you know, keep doing the same dance yeah, over and over. Is, yeah, what is the answer to our, <laughs> our, our uh, sloth and our gluttonous <laughs> behaviors over the last 150 years? I mean, I, w I wouldn't presume to know, um, but I will, I will say this. And, and it's, it's good that you have a, an international audience because the first thing I want to say is in reference to like what I believe, if I may, you know, make the mistake of assuming what you were saying uh, about sitting on this mountain and being free to pontificate. Um, what that, what I felt that was, was, you know, a, a statement of like America, you know, you know, free, land of the free, home of the brave type shit. Yes, sir. Yes, but, sir. but I have, I have traveled this world extensively and the United States is decidedly in the lower middle when it comes to freedom um, of all sorts. The only freedom that there is here is if you are rich, you have the right to spend and own as much as you want, as long as you're willing to give huge chunks of it to the government. Yeah, I, think, the, I think the United States was designed to ha for people that have at least $11 million. So if you have $11 million, you can, <laughs> can survive off of that and live, live the American dream. But most, uh, almost all of Europe, uh, almost all of South America, uh, almost all of uh, obviously Oceania, and a good chunk of Asia um, are much freer societies and much more pleasant societies than the United States. And I don't say that as a hater. I love my country, and I'm, you know, I have uh, lots of issues with it. And I think it's in a period of like real uh, peril, to put it mildly. Um, but I'm also not a nationalist. Like I consider myself a citizen of the planet and primarily I'm a human before I'm an American. So that being said, um, that's the first thing that we need to realize is we are living in an antiquated system of imaginary borders that just don't work anymore. We have to find a way to exist as a global community without countries because they're arbitrary and they're creating a winners and losers situation where might makes right. And although that you could argue that that is humanity, if you're asking me what we need to do to get past it, well, that's what we need to do to get past it. We need to face the forces of regression and fear and fascism that always step in when an empire collapses and when things become uncertain, people rally around what they perceive as strength. And there is always a temptation, and rarely does anybody ever pass up the opportunity to seize power. So all of these things have to change in order for us to get anywhere else. We have to change the nature of power. We need to change the nature of governance. We need to change the nature of perception with each other. We need to stop perceiving ourselves in terms of black, white, red, yellow, because we are 99.9% .9 genetically identical to each other, and we are all pink on the inside. And my melanin content shouldn't have anything to do with how I'm treated socially, right? Yeah. Race is a 19th century construct in order to justify white supremacy. And it was born out of a perversion of Charles Darwin's book because he never once said anything like survival of the fittest. What he said was natural selection, adaptation. 
So if I grow up on the equator, I'm going to be black. If I grow up on the Arctic Circle, I'm going to be white. And it doesn't make one any more better than the other. And when people talk about, well, you know, black people behave this way, Mexicans behave this way, that's because we're talking about what? Culture. Right. We have many, many, many cultures at this planet that have religions and beliefs and mythologies. And that's people's identity, not their race, their culture. Well, I think, because, I think the U.S. has like 236 religions here that we support. So uh, that makes it a pretty special place. So I, think, I think we're as ethnically diverse, uh, probably the most diverse country in the world, I think. No, not even close. India is the most diverse country in the world. Just by breakdown of people there. I haven't ever looked at their breakdown as far as their ethnic backgrounds. Yeah, I think, I think, it's, I think it's, it's got to be one or two. So in terms no, of the United States is not nearly as, as multicultural as you perceive it to be. It's almost 65% white. It's about uh, 12 to 15% African American. It's like... Uh, well, also, you know, we're farther. speaking from LA, so you get a different perception if we were in <laughs> Iowa. Where I am, this is Oregon, man. This is white, 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 and white. Yeah, and so it's all relative. White. And then there's some white over here. And then I think I found some white down there, too. But to get back to your point of, you know, being two-legged, you reminded me when I was out at Hopi once, Hopi uh, Nation, and, you know, the Hopi gentleman said to me, he goes, we're all human anyways. You know, after all, we're all human. And so if we get back to our humanity, um, and then you're saying get rid of borders. If we, we think about, you know, from a, just a permaculture standards, like if, if we make our communities sustainable, um, that they, you know, I talked to my friend in Singapore and they like ship everything in. I'm like, that's a bad mistake. What are you doing? You guys could set up your own grow houses. You could have your own sustainable energy. You could have, they even fly in their water. As long as capitalism, particularly the type that we have right now, which is referred to specifically as end stage, where they, you, they're essentially finding, they have to find new markets to create new wealth. So they have like derivatives, uh, the right. derivative market and stuff like that, which are just, they're ephemeral, they're not real, right? right. So uh, until we change our value system, none of that matters. It's just rearranging chairs on, on the Titanic. And I don't say that to be fatalistic. It isn't gloom and doom. It's just that humans are very averse to, to radical change of any sort. Humans right. change very slowly, and we need structural reorganization of everything from our supply chain. Yeah, because we are wedded to a global system that was invented in the postmodern era, in the postwar era. It is very similar to the global economy that existed uh, during the fin de siècle, the, the, the turn of the century, and that economy and those issues led to the first world war and what we are in right now is almost an identical template and it's about world powers restructuring it's about a, a global economy that's overstretched and it's about all of the structural issues migration homelessness the drug economy so what's your plan what's your strategic plan i mean the plan is is that we first have to realize what the hell is going on here and as long as we are, as long as we are willing to take reductionist demagoguery from the politicians, uh, then we're not going to really understand what's happening. Now, I don't know how to solve the problem because it requires people to do this thing called reading. And they, do, they don't really do that anymore. 
and oh, I don't really know what to do about it. Like, I really don't <laughs> well, know. Well, they do have audiobooks. You know, we could plug audio to audible.com. <laughs> but, you know, you, you can argue, and I do argue often, that this was intentional and this was a coordinated policy to essentially dumb down our public over a generation or two. I mean, my parents' generation, the baby boomers, which I think you guys are members of, if I'm, if I'm maybe correct, but I'm you not. might get extras with me, but yeah. But like, they were incredibly intelligent and their science and math education was exemplary. And they could do this thing called like arithmetic where they added stuff up and multiplied it and stuff. And then they did this thing called spelling where like they put words, letters together in the right order and it formed a word. Like that's what they used to teach. And they, we don't teach any of that. We don't teach history. We don't give people any connection to the past. And we have systematically eliminated anything that we consider insurrectionary, controversial, or otherwise unresolved. History is truly told by the winners. And we have not been honest about our own history. Right. Well, you, it's, always, it's, an always, it's always an aspect or a perspective of history, right? Like you said, that it's written by the winners because they're alive, for one. Yeah, but what we have now are uh, more than anything else, we have like propaganda and the sins of omission. Because what we have accepted as world history is really just Western European history. Like the Indians, the Easterns, the Africans, they have an entirely different history. Right. And it doesn't, it's not about white people discovering the world and being the first to do everything. <laughs> they're just the first assholes to show up and start taking everything, right? <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that could have happened many times over because we many, many times over, only yeah. have a short record of altered history. Well, what do we? <laughs> so well, I love, I love the, I love the counter. You put a lot of thought into what's wrong. It's the, it's the other, it's the other side of, of it's the other side of that coin that, from your, from your yeah. perspective, is really where the solution lay. Because it's easy to run around and point at people's where you're talking about people or whether you're talking about countries or you're talking about cultures you can run around and dig around and find all the things wrong with it um and then make it bad uh the i, th I think the the next level would be to flip that coin and say okay well that's bad but what is it that we as humans can do as humans and how do we make ourselves better and then apply that that model and that pathway to our countries and our local municipalities and our states and our countries how do you know like how does a human get better and a human well, the humans follow other humans we teach each other like you have to teach a man to go and take another life like a soldier you have to train them to kill because it's not in our nature we will defend ourselves like any other animal and we can kill to protect our lives if it's threatened but to go and systematically take life, for example, needs to be conditioned. By the same token, we can also be conditioned for compassion. In the same way, we can be trained to be peace and love soldiers instead of killers. We just don't put our focus on that because what we value is what you have, how much you're worth, and how much power you have over others. Okay, well, you're, you're viewing that. I, I'm with you, but you're viewing those things as an obstruction and as a, and as a problem. So as a human, we're not focusing on that in order to get better. We have to put our attention somewhere else. And you mentioned it. You mentioned. I, I, I think you're just splitting hairs by saying that because you have to disabuse yourself of a behavior and like, okay, you can't get over your illness until it's been diagnosed. And the diagnosis process is sitting in front of the doctor and being told, okay, here's what you got and here's what the deal is. We haven't been diagnosed yet. 
So we need to be diagnosed for our problem first so that we accept collectively, yes, this is our problem. We don't accept that yet. Well, I think, think yeah, I think that, well, I think theologically we've been told over and over and that's that seven deadly sins and the Native Americans have told us over and over, which would be the largest one, which is greed and probably uh, being a sloth. Because if you go out on a farm country, you know, we're an agricultural planet, plain and simple. And so there's many beautiful places to grow food all around the world. All we need is food, water, shelter. I mean, if, you know, we could just build a nice little teepee where you are with the trees and the branches and shrubs. So, um, you know, well, let me it, let me use that as an example, though. This is a perfect example. And I, and I, I say this cautiously, but like. The nope. issue here is that I'm we, fine. We, open the doors, baby. <laughs> no caution. Caution to the wind, baby. Yes, you, you say that, you know, well, hey, look at that beautiful land. We can put a teepee here and blah, blah, blah. Except that this land is owned by a person. And that one person doesn't want to share and doesn't want right. to give it to the community and, and doesn't want to do that. So that person is a bottleneck between something like this being shared with others, right? That right. replicated times millions and billions of people who decide, but no, 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 this is mine. So as yeah. long as we're fighting over who's got what and we're not, and I'm not saying we need to all go communist, man, but like we need to start thinking collectively in some ways. <laughs> we need to start Thank God. acting collectively <laughs> in some ways. We need to start pooling, reapportioning and redistributing resources. And I'm not talking about wealth, man. I'm not a socialist. I'm talking about resources. Right. So resources come in all shapes and sizes and, you know, the native, again, indigenous culture and the native Americans have taught us all that, you know, we are caretakers of the land. And that's, you know, that's one thing they had to offer all of us. If we were willing to listen, they've systematically globally obliterated, as you know, almost all indigenous cultures on this planet. There's very few tribes left. What they can do is quite magical. Uh, and this new era we're entering uh, will require people to know those skills because it's pretty amazing. What skills are you referencing that they need to know? The, the communion with the planet, the, the right. ability to grow so, without, so, without like a water line, so the, the ability so. to commune with the ecosystem, to create acres and acres of crops of food without any reliance on the big man. Well, well the, you know, this is what's cool is that the, the problems are, are, are clear and you're stating the problems and the, the, the backstop is, okay, everybody's not going to get on the same page with me. So therefore nothing's going to happen. And I think that might be a defeatist perspective. I, and given the wealth of knowledge that I, mean, I know the three of us have together, wow, that could probably solve the problems of the world if we really want to get egocentric about that. But if we look at what makes a person healthy, and you're talking about, okay, we're sick. So if we're, if we're terminally sick, this will never get better and we can kiss our butts goodbye and just accept the suffering and the war and the battle and the fight that's in front of us. Or if you take the microcosm of how an individual becomes healthy from being sick and what, how they need to perceive the world, then I think you're also setting up for a macrocosm in terms of how local municipalities, states, and governments need to uh, go about their business in order to get healthy as well. Okay. So, what, so what happens when you get sick? Well, the first thing is that you go see the people who have the knowledge of healing and you ask them what you need to do. And then usually what do they do? They take a break. They take rest. They stop doing what they're doing. 
and they let whatever the problem is heal. Now, this economic and social system we have, I mean, look at what happened with the, with COVID. Is that the people that make the money, they couldn't they couldn't have us shut down for any period of time because they were losing their billions. They were losing their control. Now, yes, the average person is also losing their substance wage, but when it came down to it, the world could, can, and should like take a stop and reorganize itself. I mean, even from the most pedantic, we have the ability in this country if we want to think in nationalism. Welcome to Indie Creators in the Joy Zone. This is Suzanne Toro and Thomas Ardovani. You are listening to us on iHeartRadio. In addition, you can stream us weekly on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and a wide variety of players worldwide. Without further ado, let's dive into the Joy Zone. You see, so long as I see my neighbor across the way as a Trump supporter and ergo not worthy of my compassion, my 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 uh, fidelity, and my you know neighborly like love, you know love for each other, then there, what's the point? We would be better off separating into a bunch of little countries and breaking off with like-minded enclaves, except that the same problems will eventually repeat themselves when one group sees that the star-bellied sneeches have stars and the plain-bellied sneeches don't have them, and so they're going to want their stars. <laughs> and then once the star-bellied sneeches get their stars, they're going to realize that they don't want them because they're not used anymore, so they want their stars taken off. Well, well, let's uh, well, like I said, the, the, per, the, per, the perspective that you're giving me is sort of a karmic spinning circle. In other words, uh, there you go. Now, now you're getting to what I'm really getting at, which is that you're trying to solve a problem that I'm going to argue isn't solvable, that it's our destiny. We're, we're, we are not long for this world in the current form that we inhabit it. Well, that's samsara. And so, again, Hopi talks about this prophecy. If uh, They have a, a rock out there you can go. All right, last guess we talked about. But it's a time of separation, you know, and I've been talking to one of the leaders I uh, am close to and I keep asking him, like, are you sensing this? But, you know, the, the separation is occurring and we don't know on a quantum level, like where our tension is, like we, we've been, you know, conditioned as of late in mindfulness to be in the present moment, to be in the now. But as our collective consciousness shifts, who's to say, because everyone writes it as Armageddon, that we don't snap through like a DMT experience all the, uh, the all of a sudden into another place of observation. And we, those that are conscious and aware move into that dimension and those that want to continue chasing their tail stay right here. Like my dog right next to me who's chasing yeah. their tail right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree too, but I think like in, in, in practical anthropological terms as well, I, I would argue a theory, and I think there's some basis for this, that what we're seeing is a kind of a bifurcation of evolution as far as the humans. I think we're, I call it homo narcissus and homo empathic. Interesting. I think that we're becoming one. one like a great book. That's a great book there, buddy. There's a very smaller group of us that are becoming, and I like to identify with that because I believe that that's the path I've been on because I have been, I haven't become more hardened by this world. I'm becoming softer by this world. Right. I've, I've become more loving, more compassionate, more open and stronger, able to withstand psychic 
energy, for lack of a better term. I hate using like these, you know, questionable words because I like to ground things tangible. Electromagnetic uh, yeah. charges. Whatever on your it is, you know, sensitivity or whatever it is. Like, and then and then there's homo narcissus, which is essentially losing their capacity for empathy. And that that has been a proven historical pattern that oftentimes during really you know, challenging phases or eras of life, humans have had to been reduced to more base survival. Ergo, their natural empathic instincts are going to reduce in order to survive because life wants to trump life. Yep. And so, you know, I'm afraid that homo narcissus would uh, essentially wipe out homo empathic, you know? Right. Uh, well, 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 keep in mind, even... Or it'll e destroy itself. Even, even empathetic doesn't mean that the action changes because it matters on perspective. So you can be empathetic um, and still put something out of its misery. Uh, the, uh, uh, the individual perspective, we're speaking <laughs> in broad... Gener yes. We speak in broad <laughs> generalities and a lot of times. You can be empathetic and still kill something is what I'm trying to say. Well... Yeah, but under what circumstances? You know? Exactly. So for every for, for every for every action, there's a unique set of circumstances that every one of us takes. So it's almost impossible to generalize an individual. But when we see our government sort of behaving like a spoiled child, or or we see groups of people or cultures sort of shift, and we see where their priorities lay, then we can we can call them the great infidels. You know. Uh, which is what we're referred to through most of the world. We're referred to as the infidel. And, and if you look at the word infidel, it sort of fits us to a T in a certain respect, um, especially going down the road that we're going down even more now. We're becoming more and more of an infidel in a respect. But I want to stay on this with you two because you two are, are probably, well, I know this one's about as smart as I've ever met in my life. Uh, and uh, I, I'm learning about you, but I think the the, the solution of ex expectation of empathetic, and you don't confuse sympathy with empathy, because they're not they're not related. One is having an insight in into an understanding of what's happening, and the other one is feeling sorry for something and and uh, lending a hand possibly, and uh, or yeah. or putting putting yeah. yourself. But yeah, that's that's more sympathetic than empathetic. I uh, agree. So we have, we, how does a person get healthy? Is what I keep posing that question. It's the third time I posted. Okay. And let's, so let's because, because, one, get because, because what, we could solve the problems of the world right here on this little radio podcast. And we, if we can like create, if, because between the two of you, how to get healthy is known. And if we can like then broaden that philosophy out to a macrocosm, in the next 20 minutes, we would have contributed something to our audience because I think what to do is a far more interesting question than what's wrong and what we can't do. Yeah, well, okay. First and foremost, you know, for each individual, it's been my experience that they have to want that. They have to really want to heal and they have to recognize that they uh, are sick or wounded or whatever, damaged, whatever they want to call it. But they have to recognize it and then they have to engage in the work and there is no healing without work now see this is where i again like i must concede to the powers of cynicism in the sense that th this is not something that most people can do it requires a tremendous amount of self-direction of discipline of self-reflection the ability to take harsh 
critique about your own behavior patterns, suss them out, identify them, ultimately integrate them and love them. Now that's a big order for people to do. <laughs> no, let's when, talk about the work. Let's talk about the work. The what jagged else? edges. We all have them. We all have jagged edges. What else is there <laughs> other than the work? So as opposed to avoiding how difficult the work is, uh, like for our listening audience that may be suffering, you know, I suffer from time to time. I have bad days and good days. Uh, how, how can we do this work? How, so you're, you're, you're making it sound like if you work with somebody, then somebody's dictating and somebody takes you over. No, no, not necessarily. So, I think we have shifting teachers that show up at various points throughout our life, depending on what it is that we put out, what it is that we ultimately are calling in or asking for. And you, I believe that one will be presented with multiple opportunities in order to engage with that problem, in order to, you know, clear a cycle, end a cycle, otherwise gain uh, some greater awareness or resolve and heal and move on. Beautiful. But, but if you don't get it when it's presented to you, you're going to keep getting it, keep getting it, keep repeating it. Keep chasing your tail. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So okay. It's, it's our responsibility to recognize the opportunities. Excuse me, I, I talk over you. But no, no, no. We're talking over each other. You got to fight because there's a delay, so you got to keep fighting. So, um, you know, recognize the opportunities once they're presented to you, and then you know seize them and make the most of them. Now, most of us, most of the time, are too caught up in our shit and our patterns. We're looking down instead of looking up at what's coming towards us. So when the cycle, the opportunity to change finally gets there, we're surprised by it. Oh, fuck, where'd you come from? Jeez. Uh, if we were looking for that, then we would see clearly once the opportunities start coming and then your intuition starts to kick in and you start to feel things change. Oh, there's going to be a shift here. I see these people moving out. I see these people moving in. I see this coming. I see this going. I, I feel this. I sense this. I hear this. I see this. You know, it's, 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 the more you wake up and the more you kind of... Oh, I love that word, wake up. What is that? What is that? Yeah, how did you just use that word? You know, I mean, in every way that you can imagine in the sense that like, you know, the world right now is in a trance. It's, it's in a spell. You know, for, I think they were even, the rioters in Portland are shouting that in the middle of the night in neighborhoods. Yet it's an interesting dichotomy when we use the word wake up because it's kind of like if I run into either one of your ears and shout that, you're probably going to might hit me or push me back or run away from me. Well, usually life gives you that call, I think. You either run into yeah. a wall, you get a car accident, or somebody dies, or you get Yeah, it has to, to come from within. So, so let's say this. Let's say you get, we got, we got, we got somebody on, on the line that's ready, that realizes, whoa, this paradigm, this karmic spinning circle, this trance that I've been in has been a trance. How do I break free of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, they I need to ask, ask that. that question. Um, but, you know, part of it is that right now, with the conditions that we have, access to healing is a privilege. And more importantly, and I really got to make a point of this, the time to heal is a luxury that most people do not have these days. And so, especially with grieving, we lose people in our family. We lose our spouses. We lose our children. We are expected at work the next day, you know, or the next week, whatever it is, but we're expected back as soon as we're better. Right. But who's ever better? I lost my sister seven years ago. I'll never be the same. 
I mean, that wound will always be there one way or the other. It irrevocably and inexorably altered the course of my life and who I am. And, you know, I lost 33 people in 10 years to, you know, violent death or suicide. <sighs> wow, you, sorry, you, you don't, you don't ever, thank you. But, you know, you don't ever like that. How do you get better? Well, I, guess, so, I think if you live long enough, you'll lose everybody you ever knew. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these people all died young and tragically and unexpectedly, except maybe the Bavas and even they died tragically and unexpectedly. But have you given yourself uh, time? To, have you given yourself time to come through that? Because for a lot of people, they don't understand the difference between sadness and grieving. Yeah. Can, can you can you can you can you discern the difference between the two for our audience? I mean, I, I can now. Yes. Uh, grief is a very specific process. You know, it is about the specific loss of something and the static battle between how long one holds on to the memory, the idea, the the expectation or the, or the need. And grieving is about the process of letting all of, letting whatever of that is go. And loss is incredibly painful for the human animal um, because it's part of our hard wiring to preserve our species and protect our young. And that's the grieving part that that, that yeah. holds on to our attachment to our significant yeah. others in order to survive. You're tracking that back to a sort of yeah. instinct. But we can also we can grieve we can grieve a home, we can grieve an era, we can grieve a place. You know, if we've lost any of these things, we can go through the same five stages of grief as with losing a person or an animal. Okay, um, that that's part of it. it those five? What are those five stages? Uh, shock. Anger, denial, bargaining, and acceptance. It's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five uh, Oh, can you say that again? Jock, anger. How do you, how do you define jock? Disbelief. Uh, Disbelief. And, but it's also um, more like lack of response. Physiological sort of... Physiological shutdown. and psychological shutdown. Or out of, lack more of, out of body. Out of body, and then the next one's... Body. Disassociation. Anyway. So shock. Then there's, ang then there's anger, which is we're all familiar on the wave when all the emotions together combine and they come out as rage. Yeah. Right. And then there's denial. Uh, no, no, no. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. No way. This can't be happening. Why is this happening to me? No, 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 no. We're just creating a whole nother story right next to it, right? Just not. And, and then, yeah, and then like with my sister, there was well, she didn't kill herself. Actually, she was murdered. You know, oh, that's what my my, uh, my father. Well, no, but my father thought that she was, but she wasn't. She just committed suicide. But my father wanted to keep, he kept her alive in his mind by thinking that she was murdered, so he needed to pursue her victimizers and bring them to justice. That was what kept her alive in his mind. I mean, you must understand that the mind loses itself for a while during the grieving process. Right. True. Absolutely. And then bargaining is, okay, listen, I will never ever fart at the dinner table again if you just let my dog come home i swear to god i will clean my room and you know what i mean or like i swear i will never treat my daughter you know harshly again if she just comes back right bargaining wow that's bargaining or, or i should have could have would have i should have could have would have if no, i had I just done this if i just do this i might be good enough to redeem you know, yeah. and then there's also the, you know, there, there are, there, you also jump around these. So they interchange, you know, so you don't follow them in a, in a clear chronological path. So 
you can be you can have already accepted one aspect of someone's death and not accept another like I did with my sister I was I had accepted that her physical death had happened but I thought that she was trapped in some kind of spiritual no man's land because she had committed suicide so I she was she became the focus of everything I was doing in order and until I got to the point where I resolved all of that and then that when you resolve it that's accepted so the acceptance is just a one step so it just happens so you accept at some point you accept it yeah it just happens any any number any multitude of things can push us to that point where we finally accept and that's when we let go that's that act is finally letting go no, you are you're one courageous dude, dude. I mean, you went through that so many times, and you come out the other end, and here you are. You're still you're still fighting. You're still you're still like trying to figure out. You're still helping people, and that's like wow. So so collectively, right now, because of this uh, karmic humanity's karmic moment, regardless of who who started it all, um, you know, we're all in this this actual grief process because everyone has lost something in this process. So, and then I call it uh, the, the SHIT on top of COVID, the real life stuff on top of COVID, like losing a family member, uh, you know, losing your business. There's all these other different things on top of this like mind thing that happened to everyone. So we're in kind of a, a PTSD moment for a lot of people and many people don't recognize it yet Um, maybe they've met different aspects and we keep compartmentalizing to keep ourselves moving forward yet if you can share a little bit about trauma how it does uh, the I guess the beauty if there is one with trauma is it forces you to rest because Uh, yeah (laughs) times you can't function Um, and so if you see that on the horizon how how do you foresee that um, with your work you do assisting us really like, you know, the silver lining inside trauma, the slowdown, the, the relearning how to re-engage with society, you know? Right. Well, right now we're just ping-ponging back and forth as a society between the first three stages uh, as related to COVID and all of that. We're just shock, anger, and denial. Uh, there's, we haven't even gotten to the bargaining point yet because we're not, we, there hasn't been for the public the amount of people we've lost and the amount of infected still isn't enough for us to collectively start bargaining for our own survival. Right. So that, that's, a, that's a drag, you know? So the process is still new and it's still going to unfold for a while. And it's just a matter of like, as the people are going to be falling apart all over the place, they already are. Um, you know, every day you see some crazy report of like a gang fight on an airplane because someone wouldn't force their toddler to wear a mask, you know? And these, you know, people, the, the skyrocketing rates of substance use and mental health issues, the, the skyrocketing pain of isolation when people are quarantined or locked down, or single people that live alone, or older people that don't get to connect with anybody anymore because they're on various states of lockdown. Uh, isolation is the single greatest contributor to mental health dysfunction uh, aside from violence. And it will, that bill will come due. It takes 90 days in complete isolation, no contact with other human beings to drive a person completely psychotic. Uh, It's been quantified. Uh, Our use of solitary in the United States in our penal system is a human rights crime and has been sanctioned as such by the UN and by the Human Rights Commission. So 
That being the case, let's extrapolate that out. We're all in our little COVID prisons right now, and we're in, under incredible stress and anxiety because of our economic situation. And we watch riots and we see race um, relations at a. Uh, and your friends on Facebook yell at you because you don't think like them. Friends are on Facebook yelling at you, and you're getting bombarded by. And then there's, you know, there, let's get deep and get covert for a second. There's also some pretty serious, significant like psyops that have gone around lately yep. in the last years. Uh, the three that I think are the most significant are Flat Earth, Mandala Effect, and the QAnon. And all of those are meant to make you doubt what you know to be true with your own eyes and your own ears, what you've seen and been told and received throughout history. We know the fucking Earth is round, okay? We know it. We know it. We, it doesn't matter whether it was Berenstein or Berenstein because both were said by the public. That's why the trick gets played in the head. People are like, no, I remember it as Berenstein. It's because everybody said it differently. And every one of those things, everybody said differently. So it's a trick and it's meant to, you're meant to, you know, doubt everything that you see. Welcome to Indie Creators in the Joy Zone. This is Suzanne Toro and Thomas Ardovani. You are listening to us on iHeartRadio. In addition, you can stream us weekly on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and a wide variety of players worldwide. Without further ado, let's dive into the Joy Zone. Because fascism slides in on that unsurety, that lack of a uh, solid and definitive answer about something, in steps fascism to provide that. And what they do is they give you an enemy to point it at. But if right. you don't know that, the, if you are doubting whether or not we live in a hologram or whether the earth is round or whether or not like, you know, this television show was ever on TV with this color pair of pants. You've got, first of all, other priorities than you really need to have. And <laughs> it's going to have a ripple effect where the people in power will be able to tell you anything they want to tell you. And you're going to, if not believe it instantly, you'll always be like, but what if? And that's all they need. All they need is that what if. Yeah. Because if you don't know that the earth is round and you don't know who you are. And anybody can come and tell you who you are. And they can gaslight you on a collective level, which is what fascism does with propaganda. Right. Is to create an alternate reality that is that suits the oppressor and ultimately victimizes everybody else around it. Right. And they're doing that on both sides of the fence right now, um, which is interesting to watch. Uh, one side of the fence is because they've gotten into a little bit more investigative. They're more than likely able to um, like figure out quantitative true data. Other side on certain, I guess, generational stages are blindly believing, uh, if that makes sense. But yeah. at the end of the day, I mean, we, we're still at the same place, you know, kind of battling each other in a tug of war contest. Well, like I said, we're, <laughs> like I said, it, it's, it's easier to talk about the problems and the, yeah. and the light at the end of the tunnel is like- Give everyone a hug. If, 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 if there's a way, well, if there's a way to enlightenment in terms of evolution and the way to evolution is to be able to transform this negativity and to jack it into higher states of consciousness so your perspective goes up, that's the benefit of it. And with that, you can, you can give birth to a leader uh, who understands that. Uh, or not, not have a leader and not have to follow one person or one thing but have everybody be the leader, which is kind of what we're really needing to do is figure out how not to follow 
but how to lead ourselves. Right, self-led, uh, self-reliance. You know, if, if you believe in the 90-10 theory, which is that 10% of us are wired for alpha behavior and 90% are wired for beta behavior to follow, uh, and then you also look at the fact that they, that salvation might be in the human because a person is an eminently rational and reasonable thing, but people are irrational and fearful and follow the herd. But conversely, the problem right now in the United States is that it prized and valued individualism over anything else. And so we have half the country that doesn't really give a shit what happens to the other half. Yeah. Because their, their freedom, their individual liberty, and their ability to express that is more important than the safety, well-being, and health of other people. Which and so they'll come, they'll come up with all kinds of excuses why. That, oh, it's not real, it's a hoax, it's overblown, it's bullshit, I don't want fascism, the government's out of control. But ultimately all it is is just selfish self-interest. Right. And it's because we prize individualism. You don't see that in any of the Asian economies. Because well, they're collectivist. It seems like, the, well, like, like I said, it, it's not a matter of whether you want to follow that leader who's created within himself a leadership quality that he uses to get navigate the world in an intelligent fashion. If you want to follow that person, then follow them. If you don't want to, then don't follow them. Nobody's saying what you have to do. The point is, is that the individual... How much choice are we given about that, though? I mean, honestly, how much choice are we given? You know, we well, have, we well, have these people foisted on us. You know, I got, I got, there's, you know, one point, how many, 7.88 billion people on this planet, and I got to choose between two to lead me? I mean, come on, that's a really, like, low pool. Well, right. I'm, not, I'm not even sure if those people are worth following because I'm not even sure that they're embodying what I suggested. But what I'm suggesting is, is that for the individual who can transform the negative aspects of things and shoot themselves up into their higher states of consciousness so their perspective is good, they can see into objective reality, which makes their choices good for not for them and if they have a family, maybe their family too. Uh, if there's enough people that do that, that have an, a perspective of the objective reality, then their choices are going to be better. Um, and that's not theoretically. A, that's theoretically. A, well, in practice, that's not theory. That's practice. That's what any yogi would tell you. That's an actual yogi. Is that through their practice, through their practice, through their practice, they kind of have this little smark on their face, and they're kind of really relaxed. So, what those people have in common is that they're relaxed, and they are able to key into higher states of consciousness and higher states of awareness through their practice, which makes them somehow enlightened, as we call it, as we make reference to. And I think there's so much, like you said, suffering. And there's so much confusion. Uncertainty is actually what you were sort of describing. Uncertainty being the antithesis to action. Once once you make somebody uncertain, then you can get sort of control over them. Is what you're trying to say as well? Yeah, and, absolutely. And if there's if there's a if there's a way out, you 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 work on yourself. And so the work that you're talking, I'm assuming the work that you're talking Inner about, work. the work, is gets you to a point where you can have that moment of clarity so that you can realize, hey, a lot of this baggage I'm carrying around with me is just baggage, whether it's CNN baggage or MSNBC or Fox baggage or Trump baggage or BLM baggage or Me Too baggage. I'm carrying that around. Well, I don't need to carry that around. That doesn't really affect my life one way or the other, actually, in this given moment. And in that, we find peace. And then in peace, then hopefully we can share that peace with others, right? Sure. I mean, 
you know, act as if and be the change and all of those things are like, you know, all certainly valid and they do have tangible effects. If you move through this world in a, you know, peaceful and non-confrontational manner, you're likely to inspire that in others, yada, 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 all of that I believe with. But, you know, there's also this growing, you know, understanding that, you know, the longer you live, the more you see and the deeper you go into this work, I always hated the use of the word when people would say this, but I'm starting to understand it. But like they would always say, oh, but everything is just perfect. And I'd be like, oh, no, it, it ain't perfect, man. Trust me. It's <laughs> but, you know, there's no, it is. And what it means to me, what I think ultimately what that means is that somebody told us that we're supposed to be happy and productive and successful and that peace and all of this stuff, but that ain't really what we're designed for we're designed to be all over the place and some of us live and some of us die and some things go right and some things go wrong and the course of human history is ever alterable but shit happens and sometimes people die sometimes there's wars sometimes there's uprisings that change or liberate a culture but it's all part of our experience and everything we've done has led us to this moment and every action has led us to this point we are collectively acting out this great drama that is our destiny and who are we to try to alter it well yeah we think that we can alter it well the and this is the I, is, okay, I hate that bell give me this big bell <laughs> right so and charles this is you know this is a tender thing i try to explain to my clients when they come in and complain about their their karma that they're in and we all have karma that comes to us in the present moment and that's from our past action did you like what he said though i just I rung, was beautiful. I rung the bell my got a big span on the I, on the bell i, I am okay go. <laughs> We're talking about the Leela of life. Grand Leela, Grand Leela. That's what he's getting at. The, yeah. To get over this hurdle is this one thing that they don't tell society. They don't, because we're an on-demand society. Our yeah. technology's on demand. Entitled. Our food's on demand. Everything comes now. But one thing they don't, they don't tell anyone is that our current circumstances are from way back when. And so you know, maybe some of that's coming up in the civil unrest, you know, the people that are feeling the the reality of their ancestors' slavery, you know, they're realizing like, wow, that sucks. They're finally realizing it. But the reality is, is in the present moment, we can reconcile that cosmic bank account. And it means oftentimes getting humble, bowing down, not getting so caught up in the drama and saying, okay, what do I have to do to make my way? Oh, I'm, you know, financially burdened. What am I going to do? Am I going to see the resources around me or am I going to bitch for the next 10 years that I don't have the resources? Or I'm going to be like, wow, I got this and that. And wow, I get to be here. The, the perception changes. And then we start realizing that we, the second part is we have responsibility for our present moment actions so we can pave our way into the future. Because right now we're just getting ready to repeat chasing the cat's tail, no matter if it goes left, right, or center. Until well, we realize that moment that we have the power right now to pave a new way into the future for our future generations. But for every person, for every person that's born, they have to learn all these lessons that we're talking about, right? I would like to comment on something that you mentioned at the early part of the show, and you had said something about like, well, people think that they can just riot and loot if they're unhappy. 
And I'd like to step a bunch of steps back out of that perspective and offer a different one, which is that, I mean, riots have been the primary instrument of social change for millennia. And when the public is not happy, the public has an obligation or the public simply has no choice but to rise up. The problems these days, in my perspective, from my perspective and, and my personal opinion, is where you place value and importance. So the people that are getting all upset because some corporate stores are getting looted have their priorities out of whack. And the people that don't understand that, like in Portland, for example, they're attacking the police department and symbols of authority, you know, they're, mi they're missing the point, right? From the perspective of the people that loot, um, you know, the Walmart or, or the Best Buy or whatever in Chicago, that was an act, that was a deliberate act to try to say, like, we don't give a shit about this. We don't care about your big corporation. And we're going to show you. So if you think that we're just a bunch of poor, you know, insert racial epithet running around, you know, uh, looting just because we don't know better. Well, but I, I would argue that the looting and the rioting is an expression of the change that is happening. If you cannot get any traction through the more polite channels, then what, yeah, is, what are so we So what's do? interesting with this looting and rioting, Charles, is that it's a double dip. It's a double dip greed. So they're bought and paid for rioters. We, we went into the riots sure. here. Yeah, yeah. There and are so provocateurs it's, everywhere, yeah. So it's yeah. interesting. It's like, oh yeah, it's not even self-motivated rioting. It's like, I get 20 bucks an hour to go steal a bunch of stuff. So I get a bonus on top of it. I mean, you could watch them. They oh. Drive droves. No, no, no. I, I got I to back up here. Yeah. Nine times out of ten, and the government documents and research has all borne this out, but nine times out of ten, those provocateurs are paid by the police force. Right, of and, course. Yeah, and, and their intent, okay, that's, I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, yeah. And their intention is to create violence in order to um, negatively impact or draw a very bad light on the protesters and yeah. also to, you know, justify more police repression and greater tactics. Right. I, I was uh, the direct action coordinator for the Green Party of the United States in 2004 and 2005. My job during that campaign season was to organize all of the Green Party's protests around the country and lead them. So yeah. I was in the streets at all the major political conventions and all of that. And I had already come out of the globalization protests in Seattle and the Cancun and the Miami model and all that shit. So by the time we got around to there, it was clear how much infiltration was all around us. On either side of me would be a police administrator that yep. would be the first one to throw the bottle, the first one to throw a punch, the yep. first to scream, you know, kill the police or what have you. Now, I know that I can be dismissed by a good chunk of people as not being objective just by mere virtue of my affiliation with those groups, but I'm telling you, it's all there. Yeah, yeah, and now it's been documented now that we have these little devices well, everywhere. Well, it's not, it's a tactic is an old one and it's being used by both sides for sure. Uh, but but it's not, uh, it's, it's certainly not clear exactly. It, it, it's the uncertainty and the unclarity of who's doing what and one person starts in and it's easy to bring in other people and just create a big melee, which is why I think people have a hard time reporting <laughs> accurately on what the hell's going on because nobody right. even knows what the hell is going on but it's but, but, it's, but look at underneath it is that that's exactly an expression of how nobody themselves in life has any idea what's going on right, right. now that that rioting is an outward expression of fucking fear and like anxiety and rage at what they see as incompetence towards their 
very lives. And I'm not just talking about BLM, man. I'm talking about everybody because the riots are everybody. They're, they're multiracial, multi-economic because everybody's getting screwed right now. Right. You know? Well, it was interesting. I think the key factor there is the lack, lack of code of ethics. We saw not, I mean, a while back, but it was a, a documentary on Gandhi, which was kind of interesting because you got to see, it was made in India and you, you got to see kind of the corruption that was around him, you know, and even his organization today is, is used uh, in interesting ways, you know. Um, so oftentimes we have these core principles, you know, of doing good or what we want change, but we don't really think it through, you know, and even with, if we take the riots in general, you know, I, I stopped a lot of the young adults that were there with hateful things on their signs asking them, what do you need? Like, do you know what this is about? But it comes, if it, we bring it back to the person, you know, the individual and restoring trust that if I, my, Suzanne makes change, I'm going to restore my inner code of ethics, my, my footing on the earth. And even if that means I end up in the forest with my backpack, <laughs> I, I have such instinctual trust with myself and mother nature that everything's going to be all right. But for a lot of people, because of the other, the other materium that they're attached to, they may not have that confidence. So that makes them um, avoid really getting to that base place. Well, like, hey, am I going to be all right just with me and my backpack and the forest? I love, I love, I listen, I, I love where this has gone. <laughs> I, mean, this I is don't like, know if it went anywhere other than well, we, think, we, we have to heal. <laughs> I think there's a lot. That, no, there's a lot in there. There's a lot. I mean, the, the man gave us. All we really need to take away from. Yeah. Well, the man gave us a lesson on grief and the progression through grief. I mean, I'm, I'm better for that. I didn't even think about that in those stages at all. And it, the moment you were talking about those things, it became very clear to me that uh, 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 that the time it needs to come through those things before you are asked to go back to work, before you're asked to go back to your family, your single family, maybe. Your one kid and your hard, your two jobs, your three jobs, or whatever it is you got going on, how easy it would be to be in denial and to not ever let that wound heal properly, and for you to sort of start this whole conversation off with uh, a cosmic effect that's happening to, to I guess, I guess, well, the, well, the universe, the universe of universes, is influencing us in a way that can be partially instigating our need to balance and to harmonize in order to move into a, uh, an age of Aquarius or into a... Oh, we're, we're in it. Don't get me wrong. We're in that age now. It, we're done. We're not, it's not the dawning. We're in it. Like it's, we're in, the uh, age of, in the age of Aquarius. The age of, Pisces is, the age of Pisces technically ended it in 2000, you know, and the age of Pisces is ultimately referred to as the age of Christ and because the fish and all, Jesus and all that stuff. But the age of Aquarius is a totally different ballgame. And... Um, you know, we are reorganizing uh, everywhere, uh, and voluntarily and involuntarily because of it. I want to leave you with something, which is that Gandhi was a virulent racist, and he was a misogynist that slept with underage women, girls. Right. I should say. Um, yeah. it, history holds up certain heroes because they are convenient for the power structure that exists. And Gandhi and King were not were so-called nonviolent leaders. And it's real easy to hold them up as leaders because you can just plow those people over when it when the shit comes down. Uh, right. The people that really talk the real revolution, the people that actually try to do it, they, you never hear from them or they don't live very long and they're never held up in history. 
who knows about Franz Fan and let alone Malcolm X, you know? Right. Yep. Um, Absolutely. Well, and also when we, I think when we bring the past, like if we bring Gandhi here, there's a whole school, you know, what most people don't realize is that things are different during stages. And so even generationally in one generation, we have people that are a hundred that grew up and transformed during totally different eras. So developmentally, spiritually development, all those things, their evolution on an eternal level is going to be different. Um, and so, yeah, Gandhi was not all hey, about peace, hey, love, hey, and you happiness. Guys, you guys stop slamming Gandhi. He's my, he's my guy right there. He's my hero. I like, hey, 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 hey. I have hey, a good hey, passion The other thing to remember about Gandhi is that that revolution, they called it a nonviolent revolution. It was plenty violent. It was just violent. Oh, it was very violent. Hard to watch. Plenty well, of Indians were, you know, bludgeoned to death and died under horrible things. Well, yeah. the, listen, the, the point is, is not whether it failed. And you've been talking about failures for a long, for, for most, of the, most of the conversation along the way. And we, we, uh, we understand that our propensity to fail is, is greater than our propensity to succeed. So when a, when a person fails thousands of times and all of a sudden they pop their head up through and they feel like they've had some sort of a clearing, some sort of a, a personal victory. It's, it's, it's those thousands of failures that preceded that one victory. And it's easy historically to look at people's failures, but not look at the uh, ID, ideal that they were pursuing and maybe even touched on. And even because they touched on it, influenced the world in a positive way. The, the, it's not whether we fail or whether we're flawed or whether we sin. It's whether we are able to come to terms with that, forgive ourselves, and contribute and be of service. Welcome to Indie Creators in the Joy Zone. This is Suzanne Toro and Thomas Ardovani. You are listening to us on iHeartRadio. In addition, you can stream us weekly on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and a wide variety of players worldwide. Without further ado, let's dive into the Joy Zone. Here's a question I've been dying to ask you. Oh, you, I don't <laughs> Well, this will be interesting. Don't, don't, don't. Yeah, wouldn't it? I can't uh, wait. Charles. Yeah. Can you hear us? I have to mute because the wind is really strong. Oh, okay. So if you were God or this unexplainable word that people use a lot uh how would what three things would you leave give humanity you if you're a god <laughs> not not just unexplainable but god really the overall overall seeing god you have three things to make humanity better what are you, what are they going to be well you guys will be pleased to learn that i actually am god and so uh <laughs> i have been thinking about it. uh what what would i give them um give us yeah I think we already have everything that we need. We just need to reconnect with it. And it, it's like our connection to and our responsibility for each other. We've just lost that in, in this particular nation. All right, so that's one. That's our connection and responsibility for each other. What's two? I would remove uh, that mechanism in the brain that denies the things that they're seeing right in front of their eyes like their planet falling to pieces. There's some weird, like, I, I screwed something up in the uh, wiring and I need to get in there and fix that wiring mistake because there's the got one-to-one. One like, like, the like the negative imagination or improper like, use of your imagination or something like that? What heat wave? What are you talking about? 
don't know about it. Denial. You would remove denial. You would remove denial. Would right? Remove denial. Yeah, I would remove What's denial. One? What's the first one? Uh, to respect one another. See and respect one another. Is that how Just you ma say? maintain maintain the connections on all levels, like physical with all your relations. And yeah. to look out for each other, and to, and to care for each other is how we used it. And then the okay. next one's denial, to care for each other is first one. Denial, denial, second one. And that's a great one, dude. Nobody's ever said that. Nobody's ever <laughs> even come close to that. I love that one. And the third one? Um, I would um, remove um, whatever makes one human either want or believe that they have something of greater value than another. Wow. Envy. Maybe envy? Is that called envy? Envy and pride, but it's also where we place our values, what we put value on. Yeah. You know, the ability for ephemeral, not, you know, intangibles to suddenly make one person elevated above another. Right. Yeah. Envy and pride. It's an aspect of the ego. Yeah. Well, you know what? You, are, you know what, sir? You, you would be a great God. <laughs> and we would all be blessed to be under your rule. There's a lot of people that would take issue with that. Right? <laughs> well, I don't know. There are a lot of people take issue with God. So you're, you, as, as you started off, you, you, you are God. And I believe I believe that that aspect shines through you. You have a lot of fans, Charles. Yeah, you have a lot of, have a lot of fans, Charles. And I believe that aspect of you uh, shines through in, in spades. So you're... you're, uh, it, was, you're it was a long battle to get here, man. I was kind of an asshole for a while. And, you know, my priorities are in the same place as almost everybody else's. Self-glorification, my career, my accomplishments, my name in light, my name, my name, my name, my name. And over time, I developed these, you know, because I was, you know, wounded and unresolved. So I also developed these characters in order to push through my agendas. And, you know, I did a lot of things that I'm really ashamed of and, you know, things I regret that I had to go through the whole process over. One of those things is not really recognizing and, and being grateful for all of the wonderful things that I did have. Like I lived in a world where I had all of these professional accomplishments and all this attention and what have you, and it was never good enough. And in that moment, if you ask me what it is that changed me or what it is that we, we need to do, it's, you know, recognize and admit in that moment, like what the, is wrong with me well, how can i be so unhappy and then let's look at that and i looked at it and i realized that all the things that they told me that i needed to be happy i got and they didn't make me happy <laughs> i got them and they didn't yeah. make me happy you know yeah well the yogi swami Ch chitananda he, he somebody asked him well what does it take to be happy and he said well be happy <laughs> <laughs> that's about as simple as it gets right well, yeah, doctor it hurts when I do this well, don't do that <laughs> hey uh, hey Charles listen you're, you're, you're a blessing it's been a real pleasure and I think our audience is going to love you going to love you up on Indie Creators in the Joy Zone with Thomas Ardovani and Suzanne Toro we're here with Charles Shaw Charles Shaw yes. and, uh, filmmaker author filmmaker author PTSD PTSD uh, guy who healer healer mountain man up in the mountains of oregon just chilling like a villain and what's the best way for them to get we'll put your um handle but what's the best way if people especially want to work with you with, uh creatively and or uh doing their inner work well i mean uh instagram is the only social media platform i really use anymore and yeah. uh what is it? instagram instagram it's at nomad creative consulting yeah, um, I, ha I have a Facebook account that I check, but I don't really use Facebook anymore. 
but yeah. I can be reached through Messenger. I can be reached through Facebook. Pretty much any of so, those social platforms. I'm easy to find. Um, you know, I'm easy to find on the on the net, and you can give them my email address too if you'd like. That's fine. Okay. And what is it at? No. At Nomad Creative. Say that again. Consulting. Consulting. At Nomad Creative Consulting. At Nomad Creative Consulting. That's where we're going to find you. And that's where that's where we're going to go hunt you down and get some more knowledge too. <laughs> yeah, there's lot, lots of fun stuff on the Instagram account for sure. All right, yeah. all right. Lots of fun stuff on Charles yeah. Shaw's Instagram account. There you go, people. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure. If you want to just push your button and click off, we're going to sit here and talk about you. <laughs> okay. Great, great to see you, Charles. Thank you so much. Very much. I really appreciated Absolutely. this. Ciao. Lots of love to you. What a fiery spirit he is, huh? Yeah, he has. He's a wealth of knowledge. Uh, his book, Exile Nation, which we didn't talk about, is a pretty deep insight into the Chicago prisons and the corruption. Uh, it would be a pretty interesting read for a lot of people, given what's going on right what's now. What's the name of it? Exile Nation. And then he did a series of documentaries, one called The Plastic People, and it's about... Uh, the people that are stuck in kind of like a little anti-zone or maybe autonomous zone between Mexico and the United States, and they literally have no identity, so they have nowhere to go. So they're stuck in this little vestibule, and he did a, a documentary on them, which was re really powerful and riveting because you see a lot of things that most people, uh, especially in North America, Canada, maybe even Europe, don't get to understand that exist uh, on this planet. That you could actually be born and not documented ever. Wow. Okay. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Yeah. A lot of stuff that yeah. should have brought that in there when we were. When well, we were he, he wanted to talk more about what we talked about. So it's good for people if you want to check out that work, to, you can look it up on the web. It's available. What is it? Um, plastic People. We'll put the links in his book, Exile Nation. Uh, you can purchase on Amazon. And it's a, it's a great read. Uh, it gives you a little history about uh, present day corruption. And you know what? It, really specific to Chicago, so it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, there was definitely a. Um, it's easy to get stuck in that cycle of focusing on. You can see where the line in the sand was there. Like, it's easier to talk about these problems. It's easier to point out all the difficulties, and you can see like there was like a line to get above. You know, and that's that's really our line. I mean, he showed us where the line was. Yeah, it's like it's like, and that's and that's where it gets a little uh, open to opinion, and that's where it's easy to like to chop people down at the knees because people that might be making headway, people that might be at peace, people that might have found their perspective, maybe you know not perceived uh, in a proper light, maybe uh, maybe perceived as. Uh, somebody who doesn't belong to something or there's not a, not a part of a group or something like that and that could be anything further from the truth that people that awaken or find peace in chaos are not a part or aloof or indifferent it's having the ability to see into things and to see what needs to be done and um, um, that's the road that I think we we got to focus on well, you know, step one, uh, inner work, <laughs> uh, also seeing what is, I think there's, you know, it's a little hard because you can go in and just talk about the problems or point fingers. It's kind of like eating dessert all day long. 
Yeah. Like nothing good for you, kind of getting in the system. Yeah. It's like it's easy to go negative because it's like it's the easiest, most accessible. Well, if we think about it, like gratification that you could get is is going negative or getting crazy on somebody, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if I relate to myself in this present moment, you know, I have my jagged edges, but I also have enough self-awareness that I can keep polishing those edges. And so that's a huge blessing. And then, so if anyone can get to that place where they can do their inner work uh, and be confident that they can keep polishing their edges, you're in a powerful place. And then, then what else is there to do? All this time to create. Yeah. All this time. All that beautiful time. And no matter what you're doing, you're creating in it. That's a, yeah. that's a huge, that's a huge advantage and a huge plus. Welcome to Indie Creators in the Joy Zone. This is Suzanne Toro and Thomas Ardovani. You are listening to us on iHeartRadio. In addition, you can stream us weekly on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and a wide variety of players worldwide. Without further ado, let's dive in to the Joy Zone. <laughs> 